Hey, this is John Vampatella, author of The Forgotten Game. You're listening to Jeff and Len on the Baseball and Barbecue Podcast. This is Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Let's play ball. From the studios of Baseball and BBQ, this is episode number 154 of Baseball and BBQ, where the BBQ stands for? Barbecue! I'm Jeff Cohen, along with my incredible co-host, Leonard Hollywood Aberman. And we welcome you back to our show. Right back at you, Jeff. Right back at you. I wish that I could just, that everybody could just know how excited I am about this show because this is special. This is really special. But you know what? This is one of those things we call a teaser, right? Yes. So I'm telling everyone it's special, but hold on. We'll tell you in one moment who we have on. Why is that? Because I'm going to tell you that football is back and bet online remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, bet online features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code believe that's B L E A V to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. And now, Jeff, back to our regularly scheduled programming. It is a tale of two Jones. Ooh. You've heard of Tale of Two Cities? Yes. This is a tale of two Jones. Two Jones. It's Jones times two. Oh. Okay. Some people could say we're jonesing for Jones. Right. The first Jones is Jeff. 1969 New York Met World Series champion, Cleon Jones, wrote a book with our good friend Gary Kacek called Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the second Jones is Bill Jones. Bill Jones Barbecue, I don't want to say barbecue icon, although he's a master judge and he's he's pretty well known, I think, in barbecue. Yeah, I mean, he was he was just at the American Royale. Right. He's a member mm-hmm. of the KCBS and a member of the Mid-Atlantic BBQ Association. Yeah. 
and he's we had a, we had just a lot of fun speaking to him. You know, he he's just one of those guys in barbecue that is what he's just a really good guy. Has a good story to tell. Great storyteller, absolutely. You know, yeah, really, really good storyteller. And and the time flew with him. I mean, it really flew with him. Mm-hmm. So we will get to Bill Jones, but now Jeff, Cleon Jones. Let's Cleon. Let everybody who listens to this show knows that we are fans of a lot of our guests, and that's we are fans. You know, we we interview the people. But many times we tell them what they mean to us. It's to to speak to these people. It's an honor. Yes, it is. Jeff Cleon Jones. What a guy! What what a he's eighty years old now, and he's rebuilding his his town of Africa Town down in Mobile, Alabama, and just helping the people down there. And it's just what what a he's a mensch, you know. He's a, a, just a great guy to talk to. And Jeff Cleon Jones member of the 1969 world champion Miracle Mets. Now, anyone and who listens to this show, if you don't know that we're Mets fans and Jeff is like super Mets fan, <laughs> what did it mean to you to interview Cleon Jones? Uh, it was it was just interviewing one of your heroes, you know? That team means so much to me, the 1969 Mets. I mean, we had Ed Crane pull on, we had Ron Fabota on, and now, and now Cleon Jones. Wow. I mean, wow. I, I agree with you. I know how excited you were. So tell us about the, you know, the name of the book and then lead us into the interview. All right. Cleon Jones wrote a book, like I said, Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets, co-written with Gary Kachek, who we will have on at another time. And let's get to it with Cleon Jones. Baseball and BBQ listeners, now I'm saying you're in for a treat. We have one. We have with us one of the best and most beloved players in New York Mets history. He spent 12 of his 13-year career with the Mets, including the 1969 Miracle Mets. In that year, he batted 340 and was a catalyst to their remarkable season. An ambassador for the Mets and now an ambassador for people everywhere, especially in his hometown of Africatown near Mobile, Alabama. His new book is called Coming Home. My Amazing Life with the New York Mets, written with Gary Kashak. He is none other than number 21, Cleon Jones. Welcome, Cleon. Well, thank you guys for having me. When you get my age, it's good to be anywhere. (laughs) But certainly it's good to be on the phone talking about my dear and wonderful New York Mets and my hometown. Cleon, you're right. I like anywhere where they're serving food. So. Oh, absolutely. You asked Ron Svoboda to write the forward. I don't know how mm-hmm. much time did you have to think about it before agreeing to it, and I'm thinking it was kind of instantaneously. Well, uh, Ron and, and I are very, very, very close. We 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 talk sometimes two or three times a week. We, we've been the best of buddies for over 50-plus years. And and certainly uh, when you're talking about teammates, you know, like Tommy Agee, uh, Ed Cranepool, and Ron Svoboda, they're always at the at the top of the list. And so we keep in touch with one another. I, I mentioned Tommy, uh, even though he's he's deceased, but Wayne Garrett, Jerry Grody, uh, Ken Boswell, we, we, we're a family. Certainly family, look out for family, and, and, and we reach out to one another. And we, we talk about the old days and 
uh, what we mostly talk about now is the things that we can't do <laughs> rather than the things that we, we could do at that particular time. Well, you know, Cleon, it's funny because uh, just to go on Ron Svoboda, we, we had Ron on, and I think we're the only we're the only show that's ever interviewed Ron Svoboda that had the book. His book is called The Catch. Right. And, and we a wonderful interview with him, and when we finished, Jeff and I looked at each other and we said, we didn't ask him about the catch. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but you, but we're not going to let that happen here because you made a catch, maybe not as difficult to catch, although catching the last out of the Miracle Mets World Series has got to be, I don't even want to think what would have happened if you dropped it. <laughs> yeah, but look, look, uh, Ron Swoboda, that's probably one of the greatest catches that I've, I've witnessed. A.G. made catches like that all year. And, and the two catches A.G. made during the series were, were, were great. But the last out uh, and the last catch that ended the ball game and said the New York Mets are world champions, that's the greatest catch of all. So oh, yeah. I, I'm remembered by catching the last ball. So I, I give Ron and A.G. their props as it related to making great catches. But if we're not, if I'm not catching that last ball, then we're not talking about the 1969 Mets. <laughs> How about right. that, guys? <laughs> yeah, Cleon, you didn't run into the, I guess, the mob after you made that catch. Where did you go? Did you go to the Mets bullpen to get into the club? Well, well we, we had a plan. We had a plan that we were going to go through uh, the right field bullpen. After the game was over, the gate was to be open, and uh, all the outfielders was going to head uh, for, for the right field uh, bullpen. And by the time I caught the ball, that shows you how much confidence my teammates had in, in me. Because by the time I caught the ball and kneeled and looked around, A.G. and Sabota were already through the gate. And so when I looked up, I started for the gate, and the crowd started for me. They were, a wave of people was coming across the field. So I can't get caught up in that. So I turned around to go back to the left field bullpen. I had to jump over the fence to get to the bullpen to keep from getting mobbed. So it, it all worked out, and being a tender age, of 26 or whatever I was at that time, I, I had no trouble getting over the fence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we're talking to our, our guest is Cleon Jones, and he has written a book called Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets. And in this book, he talks eloquently about that catch, going down on his knee, catching that ball. So I highly recommend this book. Cleon, it's, it's a fantastic book. I love the fact that the honesty in this book, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a beautiful thing because you, you talk about your career, you talk about your life, and I just feel like you're really, you're being genuine and you don't hold anything back. I, I just, I, I want you to know how much I enjoyed this book. Well, well, thank you for all of that. And that was the intent, to be genuine and, 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 and to put everything in perspective. I, I always try to, you know, give, Gil Hodges and the rest of my teammates, the props that they deserve. And 
if you if there's no Dale Hodges, there's no '69 champion met. So I, I, I try to state that in the book, and 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 state the reason why I thought that was so. But when you got Tom Seaver, you got Jerry Kuzman and McGraw and all these guys, uh, uh, all of them made the difference. But it takes a team to win, and 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 it takes an organization from the top down to put together a championship. Suddenly, that's what we had. We had the top front office with Johnny Murphy and, and the management uh, of Gil Hodges and his staff with the coaches, and it trickled down to the players, and that's why we were 1969 world champions. You know, Clint, having grown up a Mets fan, we know all about your statistics. However, reading about your upbringing was enlightening. Being brought up by your grandmother, Mama Mert, while you, yeah. while you had... Yeah, a relationship with your dad later on, you never saw your mom again. But reading about mm-hmm. your mama Mark, you grown up in a loving and supporting household. Could you please right. call it what influences in your life, Mama Mert and also Mrs. McCann? Uh, Mrs. McCann, Mama Mert, and, and Mama Tucci, uh, which was my great-grandmother, uh, name was Susie Henson. But we, we called her Mama Tucci. And being raised, actually, by these three women that you're talking about, I mean, I, it was to highlight of my life because they didn't they didn't bicker with me. When they told me that something had to happen, I had to do certain things, I took it at face value. And and, and that that's what I did. My first love in sports was baseball. And that's because my grandparents loved Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Brooklyn Dodgers. That included Gail Hodges. And mm-hmm. uh from that point on I loved the game of baseball. Suddenly uh she was proud, uh, uh, they were proud that I was able to make it to the major leagues. But not only that, win a world championship. And they were the reason for that, by putting me on the right path and giving me the right motivation and, and the willpower to succeed. And, and I, I'm thankful and will ever be grateful for that. Yeah, and, and uh, you were also a football star in high school, weren't you? Well, I... I, I I was a halfback in high school. I ran the ball. A, a, a lot of folks say I ran the ball because I was afraid. <laughs> well, nobody wants to be tackled. I certainly didn't want to be tackled. But I was always told that that was my best sport. And uh, why didn't I go into uh, professional football? As I stated earlier, baseball was my first love. I admired all of the great players, uh, Jim Brown and, and, and all of those. But I, I think I made the right choice, and, and certainly uh, I was fortunate enough to set a lot of records in Alabama as a football player. Uh, some of them still stand. But my <laughs> my whole life right now is it, it, wrapped up in baseball, uh, my hometown, and baseball has given me an avenue to make things happen in Africa town. So I, I'm certainly uh, proud of what we accomplished, and how we are moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, we're happy that you chose baseball as well. But you, 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 where you grew up was a great area for the athletes of the time. And you talked about Hank Aaron and, and his brother and Tommy. And, and look, I loved Tommy Agee when he was a player. I was, I was 78 years old when you guys won the World Series. And Tommy Agee was, you know, just number 20. And he'll always be number 20 to me, just as you'll mm-hmm. be number 20. To, to me as well. Right. Um, right. Tommy Agee, great outfielder and leadoff hitter, 
recently he was had a, a school named after him in New York. Right. It tells you how much he the player than the what the people what he meant to the people of New York. And you were at that well, ceremony, weren't you? Uh, we, we were, and we wouldn't have missed it for the world. Uh, Tommy was a, a people person. Tommy uh, signed with, with Cleveland, traded to Chicago. We got the New York Mets got Tommy from Chicago. So it's from Cleveland to Chicago to New York, and he found a home. He found some place that he could succeed, in, in, in not just in baseball, but in uh, community activities. And he did a lot of things in, in, in the Amherst community that, that wanted him be put in a position that the school could be named after him. And, and certainly uh, I was proud to be a part of the ceremony. I, I think it was well-deserved because he, he gave much of uh, his life and his, his time to that community, and, and people repaid him by naming the school after him. So I was, have to have a, I was happy to have a part in, in speaking on behalf of uh, the AG family uh, with Maxine and Janelle being present. Certainly uh, the mayor and other dignitaries were, were at, at the program, and uh, I, I think that we're talking about one player that the New York Mets brought from Chicago to New York, but represent the New York Mets fans, and now we have a school named after that player, and that shows the quality of, of uh, uh, the people that the Mets thought was after and actually uh, were able to put on the field that represent this organization because Number one is that when you're talking about family and you're talking about teams and you're talking about organization, they are good as good as the people who represent that, that organization. So Tommy makes all of us proud uh, because of uh, the kind of person he was, the, the general giant, certainly uh, made the difference in 69 for New York Mets. He played center field at Shea Stadium better than anyone that I witnessed. And we had a lot of great center fielders, Mays and Flood and Tenson, and you can go on and on and on, but he played Shea Stadium better than anyone that I witnessed. So I, you can't mention 69 without mentioning Tommy A.G. Southern Pat Gail Hodges on the back and Johnny Murphy for going out and uh, getting him to come to New York. Uh, where he made such a difference. And, and it must have been such a, a thrill to play alongside your a, a guy you know your whole life, right? Well, we, we, we went to high school together. We played all the major sports together, played basketball. Uh, he played forward. I played guard. We play, played on the same baseball team. He played shortstop. I played first base in the outfield and pitch. He pitched. We ran track. We had a state championship uh, track team. We were the best. Uh, in, in the South, even in, in, in track. So football, uh, I was a running back. He was a wide receiver. So yeah, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we were, uh, around each other many hours, many hours. We, we were just like brothers. And when he signed his first contract with Cleveland, it was my last year in high school and, and he reached out to me to have me come to the house for the signing, because he was almost certain that uh, I would sign also. So 
Yeah, we 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 were very close, and 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 suddenly uh uh he he was a major part of uh my life, and I was sad to see him go. Leon, it's amazing to me. Jeff loves the Mets, but when it comes to the '69 Miracle Mets, he you know Jeff Jeff is six. Well, I don't want to reveal his age, but he's an old guy, and yet. <laughs> He, he, like, lights up and becomes a kid again when he speaks to anyone from that team. He could not wait to speak to you tonight. I mean, yeah. look, you know, do this, but we're fans. How does it feel to have, to, to be just like in, you know, in New York, to be the love that you receive when, when you're here and, and when you walk around and people realize and, What's the feeling? What does that feel like? Well, you know, uh, again, we <laughs> I was in New York three three weeks ago, and uh, with with all of uh, the other old timers, and man, I, I felt like a kid, you know. And and certainly, uh, uh, a lot of great moments came back. Well, you, you have to know one thing that you you we was I was fortunate that I played in the greatest city in the world. That, that that's that's the first thing that you look at as an athlete, and therefore I played I played in front of the best fans in in the world. These fans they never forget what happened, how it happened, when it happened, and they they show you that all the time. So when I back in in, in uh, City Field a couple of weeks ago, walking on the field, man, it it, it was like Someone giving me fifty million dollars. I, I was rejuvenated, and uh, my spirit was, was, was level was raised so high that, that I had to calm myself down because uh, it, it, it was something uh, that I don't think I deserved. But I, I was appreciative that the fan appreciated what we did, and. What all of those guys did, whether it was 68, I mean, 86, 86, or 69, or even 73. But I, you, you, but things like that is hard to express. I had to calm myself down, and I'm just getting over that now, three weeks later. I, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm just getting over that now. Uh, I, I was so pumped up. You know, when when you when when you when you're 80 years of age, a lot of things you think about doing while you're sitting down or lying down, but but once you get up, you realize that you can't do most of them. <laughs> but I felt like I could do all of them when I was on the field that day. I could run, I could hit, I could do all those things. So I, I think what, what took place three weeks ago in New York with that old Thomas game probably added. Ten years of my life, man. <laughs> yeah, we we were at that game, and it was it was remarkable. We cheered incredibly uh, loudly. I had to, I'm saying it wrong, but when you came out, um, when you were introduced, the what was your feeling when they retired Willie Mays' number? Well, to, to me, uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was well overdue. Uh, and we, we know for a fact that Willie only played two years with the Mets, 
but Willie had a, a career before that. He played for the New York Giants, which it, it, it's New York. Most of his, a lot of his career was, was between like New York and San Francisco. But Gil Hodges was only in New York three or four years. All right. So Mays to me was the greatest ball player that I ever witnessed, and I say that. Uh, I, I say that because, I mean, I saw Mickey Mantle, I saw Hank Aaron, I, I saw Clemente, uh, I saw a little bit of Ted Williams and Sam Hughes and Mickey Mantle. I saw all of these players, but Mays did it all. He, 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 uh, he was a complete ball player, and he was a smart player also that he took advantage of every situation. And for for that I, I, you know, I'm privileged uh, to say that I'm proud to have locked up next to Willie and talked to him and listened to what he had to say and, and, and appreciate his ability. All the years that he played, to me, he, he was a, a gentle giant. Uh, he always had a smile and he always had time. And he, he was a joy just to watch go on and off the field. That that's a ball player saying that. Yeah. He he was a joy watching take batting practice or or outfield. You just watch his every move as a ball player and as a fan. And certainly uh, uh I enjoyed the two years that we had together and I would treasure that all the days of my life. I I'm sure I'm sure he was he was the greatest. Yeah, you know, the book is called uh Coming Home, My Amazing Life with the New York Mets by Cleon Jones. With Gary Kasia, Cleon, you grew up in the obviously the turbulent sixties, and and you wrote a little passage in the book saying, "I never experienced any personal racism like my parents did growing up. I don't know all the prejudice and hatred going outside of where I live. Yet, unfortunately, you felt it when you got to the minor league. Do you care to talk about that at all? Well, we will. Well, when when you shelter, when when you have. Uh... A neighborhood. I, I live in in a neighborhood of uh, uh, eighty-five, percent black. That that was white in, in my neighborhood. But I didn't I, I didn't do anything outside of my neighborhood. Everything was right there. I went to school there, a church there. Uh, I did everything. So I was kind of sheltered from the uh, the racism that that was outside of, of, of my, my my community. But when I when I signed a baseball contract and uh, got into the real world, I, I, I was kind of upset and, and really put down by all of the racism that that I I experienced. But my one guy in life was always Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson succeeded, and he did it alone. That was other blacks when I came along, even on even on on, on my team. So I, I, I had someone to share my sorrows with. Jackie Robinson, the only person he had was Rachel when he, when he came home from the ballpark or, or when, I, when they, they went out to dinner or whatever. He could vent with her. But, but I had other players. So, uh, again, my, my talk and conversation with Hank Aaron for years were, you can do it. You can break all these records. Don't let someone threaten you, and and even though it's distasteful and, and we know there's haters around, 
but your, your, your job is a ball player. Your job is to be the best that you can be. If that means breaking records, uh, whether Babe Ruth records, uh, whomever, that's, that's what you do. Don't let anyone deter you from that. And so I, we always revert back to, to Jackie Robinson because had he failed, how long would it have taken for another black to get the opportunity to play in the major league? So to me, he, he Jackie was the greatest because he, he, he might not have been the most talented, but he, he was the greatest. He had a job to do on the field and off the field. And we know how, how, how much, uh, baseball needs your undivided attention. You have to be able to concentrate to make things work in this game. And Jackie was able to do that and do it in a manner, uh, that made a difference for all of us. Absolutely. And anybody who doesn't know, it's, in City Field, there's a Jackie Robinson rotunda with a big number 42 as a tribute to the great Jackie Robinson. Right. Absolutely. That, that, that's a great, that's a great gesture. And, and certainly uh, I was proud of the organization for doing that. I didn't get a chance to visit the Jackie Robinson, uh, historic library, uh, but I will my next visit to New York. I didn't realize that you played for every Mets manager from Casey Stengel to Roy McMillan. Can you tell us about how, how it was the place for Casey Stengel? Well, uh, Casey, no doubt, was a Hall of Fame manager. He, he probably had more knowledge about the game than anybody that, that I played, played for. He knew all the players. He knew what they could do and, and what they were good at because he, he studied the game. My my thing with, with uh Casey is that, you know, I don't care I don't care how great you are, if you don't have the horses, uh, you can't win races. And certainly uh, he just didn't have the personnel to display uh his talent like he did with the Yankees. But he, he was good for the organization. They couldn't have chosen a better guy to manage the Mets in his beginning. And then a few years later, turn it over to someone like Gil Hodges, who who were, to me, a Hall of Fame manager. Had he lived, he would have been a Hall of Fame manager. All, all, all the other guys that, that uh, I played for, Westrom and all of them, they don't compare to these two uh, guys, Casey and Gil. So as I said earlier, if, if not for Gil Hodges, you wouldn't be talking about the 1969 Mets. How did Gil Hodges deal with the team when you guys would go into like losing streaks? What was what was the way he used to deal with it? Well, I, I don't I, I don't remember having any real losing streak with, with Gil Hodges. Three game losing streak. There's nothing the manager can do. But and he 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 wasn't the kind of guy that had meetings and all of that. And, and we, we weren't the kind of team that had those kind of losing streaks. When you got starters like Fever and Kuzman, Ryan, you, you're not going to have losing streaks. And we, we, we really didn't have sustainable losing streaks, like five, six, seven games. No, we, that, 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 I don't think that happened. Uh, right, so that's because the best of the way, I guess that's, that we had. I don't yeah, think that has much to do, to do with, with, with managing. It just has to do with how, how the, People, uh, how, how the players 
respond to what's happening on the field. And and he always preached that if you don't beat yourself, it's hard for the other team to beat you. And as a team, we pride ourselves of not making mistakes, like throwing to the wrong bases, or giving people out second opportunities, uh, and giving four outs in the inning. Those are the things that he preached. So that that's why we, we stayed away from uh, long losing streaks. Yeah, uh, and and he's finally in in his rightful place in the Hall of Fame. And I believe you went to the ceremony, didn't you? I, I did. We went to the ceremony. And I thought he was a Hall of Famer in every sense of the word. I, I I think he was a Hall of Fame player. He was a prototype as a first baseman. Everybody that played first base wanted to be like Gil Hodges. Uh, he had a fantastic career, and again. I think he would have been a Hall of Fame manager. Had he lived, I don't think, I know for a fact he would have been a Hall of Fame manager. So to me, he had a bad rap because he had uh, that bad playoff and went over what, 32 or whatever that was. I, I don't recall exactly what it was. But other than that, he, he was uh, doing that period. Nobody was better at first base. Agreed. Uh, Cleon, and finally, I, I know you're we, taking a lot of your time. Your work in Africatown is amazing, working to repair homes and a community. While so many great athletes came from uh, the area, I, 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 there was such yeah. more about it. I, I'm Go talking ahead. about your work in Africatown. Yeah, well, we we, uh, uh, we, we do a lot of work with, with, with the, the people in Africatown. Suddenly, uh, our goal is to revitalize and grow the community. My, my family... And I've been working uh, in Africatown for the last 25 or 30 years. Finally, we, we, we are we're making things happen uh, to grow the community. So when we bring people back into the community, we help our churches, our schools to grow. And, and what, what we've been able to do is help people with their homes, putting new roofs on houses, refurbishing houses, painting houses, cleaning up blight areas. And, and making people feel proud about their community because as a community, when I grew up, it was over 14,000 people in the community and we all helped one another. And it, it made for a great community for any kid to grow up in. Certainly I would like to see that happen again. And that's why we work so hard in Africa town to make sure that everybody that needs help, that we, we can give it to them in some way, shape or form. Well, that's terrific work you're doing, Cleon. We thank you for taking the time to be with on, on baseball and BBQ. Thank you very much. I wish the phone connection was better, but I, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Well, thank Cleon. you, guys, for having me. Thank you for taking time out uh, and uh, listening to an old uh, trooper. Yeah. I, I tell everybody, uh, once a met, always a met. I'm so proud of my career as a New Yorker and a New York Met. And I'm hopeful that we, we can continue to work as a team in helping my hometown and doing other things that's going to benefit the people that need it. God, God bless you, Cleon. Thank you very right. much. Thank you, guys, for having me. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you want a lip-smacking, finger-licking good podcast, then you got to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Lennon Jeff. They have the best guests and the best recipes on all the internet. Check it out. Baseball and BBQ.
That was great. Cleon Jones. Unfortunately, we were not able to use Zoom for the call, but it doesn't matter. We spoke to Cleon Jones. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that team, 1969, obviously you remember it. You know, I was I was a lot younger than you. Not well, I won't say a lot, but too young to remember that team. But it was the first. They were the miracle Mets. Can there be any team, even though the 86 Mets are loved, but can there be any team that really has the same, that will ever get the same love as that 69 team? Uh, Of course not. It's like, you know, any championship team, the first one, it means the most, you know? I mean, except for the Yankees, that's the last one. I mean, the most. But with the Mets and any team, you know, the the first team, when the Giants won the Super Bowl, the first one, you know, means the most. I mean, that's because who knew what was going to happen? That, that was just no one expected the 69 Mets to win the World Series. They won 100 games that year. And you know what? This year's Mets won 101. Yes, they did. Jeff, before we get to something that that I know people are going to love, and uh, I, I don't even want to spoil the surprise. I'm just going to tell everyone to please visit barbecuebuddha.com for that's our buddy Ray Sheehan with his rubs and his sauces and his cookbooks. And now, of course, he has Ray's Roadside Kitchen in Cream Ridge, New Jersey, with the special footlong hot dog named after our show, Baseball and BBQ. Then, of course, we've got BaseballBBQ.com. We'll be having them on sometime in November to talk about some new products. They're they're great. Go to BaseballBBQ.com. It's not too early to to start thinking about the holidays. And, of course, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, who we have many of those authors on. And we ask you to go to, to that site and support them as well. Jeff, I know someone there. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be very excited by what I'm about to say now, because Jeff, you have a baseball ring. So, Len, full disclosure, we are recording this on October 6th. Playoffs begin October 7th. This podcast drops October 8th. Eighth. Now we're in the going to be in the playoffs, and you know what term I'm going to hate here all the time? Postseason records. Oh, the postseason record for this year. Andy Pettit has the most postseason wins. Well, yeah, he's po- he he pitched in a lot of games in the postseason. You can't compare that to oh, you know when when Babe Ruth and Whitey Ford played, they, they had seven games series. You went to the World Series, that was it. Now you have, then in 69, you had the, the, the playoffs, you had the division series and the World Series. So you had most of you against seven, I think five, 12 games. Then it went up to 14 games. Six, you know what? This year, 22 possible playoff games if, if you have to go the full series. I mean, I had this argument with this guy today. Andy Pettit had the most World Series, most postseason wins. Okay, fine. If you have one game to pitch in the World Series, who are you taking? Andy Pettit or Sandy Koufax? Who are you going to take? I mean, how could you say there's the most postseason wins because you have more postseason chances? There's more games. It's apples 
I'm not going to say apples and oranges, apples and pliers. I mean, you can't compare the two things. You know, Mickey Mantle had the most World Series home runs, most postseason home runs. Well, not anymore because postseason is is a, a month now. How could you compare postseason statistics with each other? You can't do it. You can't do it. Can you? I'm, uh, as you're ranting, I'm thinking of, of things to say, but Jeff, I can't, I can't, I cannot argue with you. You are right. And you have you're, 22 games, 22 yes. possible games to play in the playoffs now compared to seven back before 1969. I know that was 50, 60 years ago. I get it. But how could you compare the stats when the, the number of games keeps changing? Understood. And I'm not going to say it's the same thing, but of course, Major League Baseball at one point was 154 games, maybe even less than that. I don't know before the 154. I'm not sure. Uh, And then it went to 162. But it's been that way for a long time. The postseason keeps changing. You're right. I don't think it's going to stop. I I don't know if 12 teams, because if they expand, they add new teams, there's expansion. Who knows? Maybe they end up the playoffs become, you know, 14 teams in each league. I don't know. But, but don't so you're right. Post, postseason records, postseason. You know what? Please. <laughs> you can't you can't say that. And I won't. No. I promise you I won't. You will not hear those words uttered out of my mouth. Okay? I mean, Mickey Mantle's postseason records is the World Series. That's it. Right. That's his postseason records. Right. You know, why Yogi Berra's, Whitey Ford's, you know, uh, Willie Mays's. That's yeah. that's their postseason. Seven games. Right. Now you have guys playing 22. They they could actually break the record in one postseason. Yeah. In one series. I, well, not in, in, in a postseason. Yeah. And Andy Pettit, most world, most postseason wins. Big deal. Who are you going to pitch? You had a choice. Andy Pettit or Sandy Koufax? Who are you taking? I'm, obviously, I'm taking Koufax. Okay. Obviously, Andy Pettit or Tom Seaver. I'm taking Seaver. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I know. I know Pettit's a good pitcher. Not a Hall of Famer. Very good pitcher. But you know what? Yeah, he had the most postseason wins because he had the most postseason chances. And Yankees being in the postseason all the time. Get it? But. You know, please don't tell me he's the best postseason pitcher because he's the most wins. That doesn't fly. Okay, I won't say it. I won't say it. But I, I, I'm not even. You know what, Jeff? It was a beautiful rant, and I'm gonna give it to you. Okay, you. you're right. You. Postseason, yes. Postseason, it, it's tough to gauge because it's even even this postseason as opposed to last year's postseason. I know. Right. There's and 20, and 2020 when you have you know, half the teams in the in the postseason. Right. Yeah. So that was an interesting postseason, right? And if you agree with me or disagree with me, give us a call at 516-855-8214. Please leave a message. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. We have a Twitter. Tweet, tweet. At Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Check out our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. We do have an interview on our YouTube page. Check that out at Baseball and BBQ. And please rate, review, subscribe, rate us. And, and you know what, Jeff? I, I, I'm thinking about it. 
we've had a whole season. You've had some great rants. It was a good rant. We're now playoff bound with your rants. And I don't know if that was the best rant. So I want some people to comment. I know there's one person. We have a someone I met. You introduced me to Christina, right? Mm-hmm. Who loves your rants. Christina, I'm going to ask you this. What do you think of Jeff's rant? Was this one of his better ones? Let's hear from you. All right. I'm inviting you to comment. Anyone else comment on Jeff's rant and we'll see what the audience says. Okay. All right. (laughs) And if you agree with Jeff's rant, as he said, let us know. And if you disagree, let us know. And if you think you could do better, leave us a message with your rant and we'll play it on the air. Jeff, you should have said, I'm mad as hell. And I'm not going to take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you know what, Jeff? You know what's going to make you feel better? What's that? Listening to Bill Jones as he talks about barbecue, being a master judge, and a little hobby he has called collecting fire trucks. And he is Bill Jones. Bill Jones is a Mid-Atlantic BBQ Association board member. Not only that, he is a contest organizer. Judge, trainer, master judge who has judged over 250 contests. That's a lot of barbecue. Bill also organizes contests and ensures that the rules are followed. His travels have taken him from the East Coast to the Midwest. He's also a member of the KCBS and has just returned from the American Royale in Kansas City. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Bill Jones. Thank you. So, Bill... You Like I just said, you came back from the American Royale, and that was just last week. So tell us about your experiences there. Big time. They have an open and an invitational. The invitational is you had to have won a grand championship in the prior year. And the open is any Tom, Dick, and Harriet has a smoker, and their mama says makes good barbecue, come on out and compete with everybody. That would be me. That was over 525 teams, I believe, uh, second day. So a lot of barbecue out there and, and uh, a lot of different flavors and profiles and had a great time. Bill, how does that work? Did you have to let them know you're you're coming to judge or did they reach out to you and say, Bill, we need you? The way Kansas City Barbecue Society works is uh, they sanction contests. An organizer such as yourself could have a contest in your local community and you ask KCBS to host the contest. Uh, we bring a rep in and we supply judges for the contest that have been trained in the barbecue that we promote as barbecue. That doesn't mean it's the best barbecue. It just means it's good barbecue and we like fall off the bone ribs. If you like fall off the bone ribs in KCBS scoring, that would be a low score. Uh, we want something a little bit different. We want a little bit of a bite, a little bit of tug, but still be moist and succulent. So with Kansas City contests with American Royal, other contests across the country and around the world, the organizers of the contest will solicit judges out of KCBS. KCBS trains judges and they sign up. So they'll either do it online, email, slow mail, and you get picked to come judge. So for the Kansas City contest, I applied uh, for both days and the opens which is a side dish, uh, potatoes, baked beans, dessert. And we got to judge that on Saturday. So you apply for it. Now, with that contest, as big as it is, we don't get enough judges to be certified. So occasionally there are some others that 
walk up and say, Hey, I'm, I live in the area. I come every year and put me in a spot. And they usually get a seat at the table. You know, I'm looking at the uh, 2022, the overall contest i guess the rankings and q u won won the overall but i'm looking at there's over 200 teams that competed and i mean how many judges does it take to to taste everything i mean obviously you can't you can't taste them all because <laughs> some is only so big <laughs> true uh last year unfortunately because of a shortage of judges and the way we had it set up i ended up tasting on one day 76 samples Wow. wow. Now, 76 <laughs> samples, if you figure even just one ounce per bite, that's 76 ounces, do the math, divided by 16, that's a couple pounds. Right. Uh, this year, we had more judges uh, available. Uh, they were coming out of COVID, for one thing, people weren't traveling, so we were short a lot of judges. This year, we had more judges there. I think on Saturday, I judged 47 entries, and on Sunday, I think it was just about 30. Mm-hmm. Um, if the basic math is for each team there, you should have one judge. So six team samples will show up to a table and you of chicken, let's say, and you will judge those six samples. And then you'll judge six samples of six other teams' ribs, then six other teams' bris- uh, pork, and then six other teams' brisket. So on the average, you'll judge about 24 samples. So we're not no. judging all 525 teams, no. no. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you, you know, when I watch those, when I watch all those shows on uh, TV and, and I see the judges and I always think to myself, if I was a judge, I'd make sure that I didn't eat that day. When you are judging, now I know you're judging based on, you don't want it to fall off the bone and you're judging on a certain taste. Okay. But I also know that when you're hungry, something tastes a little better than when towards the end you're kind of full and here you're tasting something else you could we could all say oh well he's a judge he's impartial i get that but you still things taste different when you've been eating barbecue all day your taste buds are affected so how do you stop that from happening how do you cleanse the palate these are things that inquiring minds want to know bill sure. So two things. We have water provided in bottles. Some contests will use grapes. Most contests use unsalted crackers. So we take a bite of our chicken. The taste hits our mind, what we think of the taste, what we think of the tenderness. Uh, We've already judged it for appearance first. And then we've judged it for taste and tenderness. After we've judged it, we put our score on our scorecard. Then we'll take a piece of cracker and a swallow of water. Mm -hmm. Kind of Cleanse your palate a little bit. Right. Um, and then you move on to the next. When you get a real spicy, you might take four or five crackers, two or three bottles of water to try to clear it out. But uh, most teams don't spice it up that bad. Um, it's a very, very sweet uh, contest for the most part. Uh, we say a lot more sweet. With you want to have that sweet and a little bit of back heat, that's, that's what most teams are striving for. Uh, back to your point about how much you eat, I've watched – you know, football linebacker size, young kids, 24, 25, come into a judging tent and they clean every piece of chicken off the bone. Then they clean every piece of rib. And as an experienced judge, you kind of like, hey, hey guys, you, you might want to slow down here. You got two more categories to go. And they hit pork and there's usually three or four samples in a box of pork. And you you should try each sample, maybe a money muscle, some pulled, some chopped, you know, some bacon that's in the box. 
and you come back and check on them at brisket and they're starting the meat sweats and they look miserable and you tell them, well, you got six more samples to go and they're, they're not real happy, but they thought they could handle it all. So judges far and more for the most part, they do pace themselves. It's not a eating contest. It's not a uh, free meal contest. It is a best presentation of your product and the judge is giving you his best effort or his, her best effort to judge it as such. Yeah. Now you're a master judge and you, you're a judge trainer. What goes into training new judges? I mean, what are you, what are you looking for to like for a person like me or Len to be a judge? First of all, KCBS has classes across the country. They're starting to pick back up now. Um, I just completed one in Bel Air, Maryland. We have one coming up in Lakeland, Florida in January. They're scattered across the country to help get judges trained. The judges will come in for a four or five hour class. We teach them the scoring method, what we're looking for, uh, get their mindset away from fall off the bone ribs. Uh, we give them pictures, videos of uh, the meats, what they're looking at. And we'll ask them questions like, I'll show you a product and say, well, what, what would you score? And get them into a mindset that they're all kind of getting back to a closeness of score so that they all see the same product and be close. We don't want to judge giving a nine, which is our high score, and down to a five, which is our lowest score, on the same entry, unless there is something reasonable that that one judge who gave it a five can point out. The judges class will go through the scoring system, will have samples there of the full meets, and they will judge them and describe as to what they feel is their score as to why they gave it the score they did. Like I said, they're they're scattered across the country. We try to have them all over because they're contests pretty much all over. KCBS has contests all around the world. Foreign countries all across Mm -hmm. the United States. There's one coming up in Hawaii. They had one in Alaska. Uh, But the majority of the contests are in the continental United States. Now, Bill, with baseball, you have umpires who are some umpires are better than others and they get graded. Me personally, my sense of smell and taste are not as good as, say, my wife's. My wife can eat something and she could say, oh, I taste a hint of rosemary and garlic. And I mean, she could pick out the spices, whereas I'm just like, it's sweet, it's hot. You know, I can't really pick out the individual spices. When it comes to judging, are there some judges that are just kind of like not as good as others? Let's let's put it that way. I think in any sport, and, and barbecue competition is a sport, we feel it is, there, there are some that have their own pre-described notions of what good barbecue is. If you're from North Carolina, you grew up based on a vinegar-based barbecue. Mm-hmm. If you're in Alabama, you may grow up on a white sauce base. Right. Savannah, Georgia, or Georgia, mustard base, Kansas City, Memphis. I don't know what they do in California. Uh, that's a different story. But with the sauces, we don't try to get the judge to describe what the sauce is. We don't have them tell us to a team. We do what we call comment cards. We don't want them to fill out a comment card and say, you use too much kudaman in your sauce. The team probably didn't have it in there. But you got to understand, you mix five, six, seven different spices together. It might come across as that flavor. Uh, so we just tell the judges to instruct the team in it was too sweet too sour, too spicy, too chewy, too tough, excellent. Um, Each one of our scores has a word behind it. So nine is excellent. 
Um, age is very good. And speaking of your wife, so my wife is a school teacher. Uh, she can put a grade on a kid's paper, but she can't score barbecue. So my joke is when we're at a restaurant and I'll ask her, how was your meal? It's very good. Well, very good is an eight. So you're saying it was an eight. And uh, I get kicked underneath the table for some reason, but uh, <laughs> possibly right now. I mean, it's still getting a little chilly in here. Uh, but yeah, it's it's hard for some people because we don't do comparison. Also, uh, you judge this entry in front of you for its merits, and you could give it a nine nine nine, which is a perfect score: nine on appearance, nine on taste, nine on tenderness. The next entry might have blown that previous box out of the water. It was tremendously better. It's still only going to be a 999. And a lot of judges do struggle that with that going out to begin with. But the more you do it, you get a better handle on it. So you understand that we don't have nines in our pocket. We don't have nines that we can only give a certain amount. If every entry on your table that day was a 999, that's the way you score and it's it's a blind tech, blind judging, right? You don't know who is uh, who's cooking or whatever. Correct. That makes it the most fairest way to do it. If you knew who was cooking it, if you didn't like that person's personality on TV shows that you may have seen, uh, then you might score them down. Or maybe you like their personality on a TV show, uh, show that you might have seen, and you score them higher. So right. the boxes are brought in. Each team is given a box by the reps uh, for each meat they're cooking, and it has a number on it that they've been assigned by the rep. Then they put their entry in the box. When they turn it in the next day, a team of judges who are there will take the box and they'll apply a secondary number to it. The secondary number is what we record on our scorecard. So, for example, Jeff, your box might be 14. When it comes to the judges, it's probably going to be 387, 592, 631. It'll be just some made-up number. That's the only number the judge sees. So, Short of the team putting their business card in there with a picture on the inside of the lid of their <laughs> face or their team logo, which would be a DQ, they we have no way of knowing who that team is. And that makes it fair. So there's no impartiality applied to that team. Bill, can I assume that a judge can't have any food allergies or anything like that? You can't have gluten issues. You can't have you know any kind of food allergies, any kind of issues. Because you just don't know what you're going to be eating. Well, we know in, in the pork, in, uh, the uh, four meat series, we're going to be doing chicken, pork ribs, pork, uh, shoulder, uh, picnic butt, Boston butt, whatever you want to call it, and then brisket, beef brisket. We know in those, that's what we're going to have. When you have the ancillaries, ancillaries being something other than those four meats, like dessert. Uh, Kansas City, we did sausage, baked beans, potatoes, vegetable, turkey. Turkey Smoke Federation sponsors a, a great set of contests with us so people can take a turkey and prepare it how they want to do it. All of that is items that you might have an issue with, especially with seafood or chef's choice. And we see a lot of seafood when you see chef's choice. If you have a nut allergy, dessert may not be something you should be judging. Um, we did find it funny. I was not the rep at this contest. I heard it through secondhand that a judge had taken the class, showed up to her first contest to judge, Judge Chicken, and sat up, stood up and was walking over the tent. They said, where are you going? And she said, well, I, I don't eat pork. Well, she, when she took the class, she just didn't judge the pork. She just thought that she could judge what she wanted, and we can't do that. So if somebody does have a food allergy and you can't, 
do beef or pork, or you, your religion doesn't allow it. There are other jobs you can do as a judge. You could do turn-ins. You could be a table captain. You could help with the scoring. So there are other jobs that a judge can do. You could be a runner for a team. Sometimes a team shows up and they're by themselves. Their, their teammates couldn't be there or their wife or husband couldn't be there. And to run a box to turn in and turn around and go back to your trailer, get the next box ready, it's, it's, it's nicer to have somebody to be a runner for you. So there are other jobs that could be done. You used a term just now that uh, I'm not familiar with. Could you tell us what a table captain does sure. in a contest? All right. A table captain is still a judge. They basically run the table. They make sure that all the rules are being followed. Uh, they'll observe the judges as they're judging. They'll collect the scorecards. They'll turn them over to the rep. They'll collect the comment cards. The first thing they'll do as a table captain is they will get their tray for that table of, say, six boxes of chicken. And they will bring those six boxes of chicken to the table. They'll read off those alternate numbers to the judges who will record them on a scorecard. Then they will show the box for appearance. They will open up the box and they'll show judge one, two, three, four, five, and six at the table, that box. And then the judges will record their score for that box appearance. They'll get the second box, do the same thing. So they basically run the table for the judges. They maintain calm and order. They are the first line of defense for the contest to make sure everything's being done correctly. Uh, but that's their main job is to show the boxes and then collect all the information afterwards. Bill, you get there. You have to stay overnight. How many nights did you stay? We left out. We were there Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and came back. We left at 4 a.m. Monday morning, and I was back here around 1 a.m. Tuesday morning. We drove straight through. Okay. So does the fuel stops and such. Does the contest as the American Royal pay for your housing, your meals, your meals? Well, <laughs> I I know. I, as soon as I said that, I'm thinking, okay, he's eating barbecue. But you know what? <laughs> what My happened? brother needs a Taco Bell every now and then. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Uh, no, sir. This is a completely volunteer. Okay. You mentioned earlier about baseball. I used to be an umpire in chief for a time. And so I, I attribute baseball or softball terms so much to like barbecue contest. You have umpires, you have judges, you have contest reps, you have an umpire in chief, you have a tournament director, you have the organizer. So it's all, it's almost identical. It's just we're eating food as opposed to calling ball strike out, say, fair or foul. So it's a volunteer system. Uh, the only people that do get paid are the contest reps because they're running the contest. They're part of the KCBS sanctioning body. The judges do it as a love of the sport of barbecue. They enjoy the teams, meeting with them, talking with them, learning more about how to cook a lot. The way I got into this organization was my family did a Brundrick stew. I was cooking pork butts. I kept seeing these TV shows of people injecting and doing all this weird stuff to the barbecue. I never did that. So I took a judging class to see what it was like in 250, I think it's eight contests later. I've injected. I've rubbed, I've followed some of the people like Heath Rawls, Old Virginia Smoke, Luke Darnell, Charles Crillon, Wolf's Revenge, Tuffy Stone, Myron Mixon. They all do these videos, and I've tried several of their ways of doing things to make my barbecue my own. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I, I will say this in the, in the barbecue world, 
I can probably call on 20 to 25 people in a moment's notice and they'll be here to help us there. It's a big family. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I got another question for you before Len gets into your other hobby, which I know he wants to talk about, but you're also a board member of the Mid-Atlantic Barbecue Association. And I see on the calendar, there's a, looks like a big kind of a contest coming up in Jackson, New Jersey, the uh, Red, White, and Q. Yes, sir. So are you going to be part of that? And could you tell us about it? It's a, it's a three-day event. I'll have to look at my calendar on that one. I'm in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina this weekend. I'm in Bel Air, Maryland next weekend. I'm not going to the one in New Jersey uh, for that one. I was there earlier in the year. Blairstown, New Jersey. Uh-huh. Same same people running that contest. Same setup. They do uh, three days. They cook Friday night. Probably some one meats, like one meat ribs. And then on Saturday, they do the four meats. And then on Sunday, they do the four meats. So, Bill, yeah, it, but what Jeff said is true. I do want to get into your other hobby, but I, I have some other things I want to talk to you about before that. Like, you know, the Internet is a funny place. When you put things on the Internet, they kind of stay there. And I guess you had been putting up, looked you up, and I saw something that you had been posting. It looked back in 2017 or something about judging and what's in the box and different things about your life. I think there were some interesting things. You talked about what you like to have after a competition. So you said Mountain Dew after judging and chicken lo mein. You seem to be a big Chinese food fan. So chicken fried rice <laughs> or chicken lo mein. I judges have a craving after they've eaten all this very sweet product. I've never been an ice cream fan. I, I like a few milkshakes. Maybe I, I might have two or three milkshakes a year, if that. Ice cream, maybe a hot fudge cake. I like that. But judges love ice cream after a barbecue contest judging. They will seek out a vendor who is selling ice cream somewhere on the grounds, or they'll go to an ice cream shop down the street or wherever they can get ice cream. I've never been a fan of that. For some reason, my body is saying, I want chicken fried rice. I don't know if it's the blandness, the starchiness, the what it is about that I have a craving for. But most of the time, I will look, seek out a Wawa or Sheets, which is a local gas stations mm-hmm. around this area, and get a crispy, uh, not crispy cream, a uh, tasty cake, crumb cake, and a Mountain Dew. And I'll usually eat that on the way home because I can't be eating lo mein or fried rice going down the road <laughs> very easily. <laughs> With chopsticks, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, the state police, I think, would frown on that a little bit. I'm just amazed that you could you could eat anything after that. That is that is a credit to your to your judging ability. Let's let's call it that. Wow, that's pretty amazing. All right, let's let's. We'll, I want to get back to the judging, but there is definitely something that you are involved with. You advised us on this, and I'm so glad you did. I always tell Jeff, everyone has a story. Your story is quite involved. You own 11 fire trucks. And then and then you put in parentheses, yes, full-size fire trucks, full-size for trucks, and 108 fire hydrants. Do you know so, why? Do I know why? Yeah, do you know why I own 11 fire trucks and 108 fire hydrants? Because you don't want things to burn. <laughs> No, it's because I don't own 12 fire trucks and 109 fire hydrants. <laughs> but um, boom, Jeff, I think I found my brother, yeah. my lost brother. Exactly. 
I've I've looked at this a little bit that I kind of go in cycles. Like every 10 to 12 years, I'm in a group or I'm involved in something. I was playing softball all up and down the East Coast competitively, playing three or four nights a week in leagues and having a great time. The joke is when our son got old enough to play baseball, I turned it over to him. So he took over the family trade. Then I got into golf, was playing a lot of golf tournaments around the area. Then a friend of ours, a customer of mine, really, I collect, I own a fire protection supply company, so I was collecting antique fire equipment, helmets and extinguishers and nozzles and such. And he told me, he said, come over to his house. This man is Tommy Herman in Chesterfield, and he had probably at that time 19 fire trucks a huge barn of all sorts of antiques. His entire living room is old-time helmets and nozzles and extinguishers. And uh, we spent probably three hours over there that evening. And on my way home, my wife didn't speak to me the entire time on the way home until we almost got home and said, you're not buying a fire truck. And I said, (laughs) I have no desire to have a fire truck. We don't have a space for a truck and don't want a truck. Probably about two years later, after her riding down through parades and doing this number, driving one of Tommy's trucks, because the joke is you can only drive one truck at a time, and he needs drivers to bring his trucks out to parades and shows, uh, she said we could get something small like a brush truck. And so I bid on a brush Jeep in my county, and my dad and his best friend were there, and we had a hazmat truck come right behind it. After I bid on the Jeep, I still had some cash in my pocket. My dad's talking to a neighbor friend who was telling us, we cut the rear end off this truck and put a ramp on it. You can drive the Jeep up into this truck and you can haul them both to the same event. And it went south from there. So we bid on that, got that. Then all of a sudden everybody's saying, well, I know where it's another Henrico fire truck and they're going to get rid of it. So you talk to them. Yeah, we want to get rid of it. So I get that one. Then two more became available. And then the, the first ladder truck Henrico County ever had came available. And then another truck became available and another truck. And slowly but surely, we have a 5,050-foot square uh, Morton building with all these fire trucks in them, which all came from my county that I live in, which is in Rico. And so we've kept them as a history. At some point in time, Henrico is going to celebrate their 100th anniversary of being a fire department. I'm the only one that has these trucks saved for future generations to see. I have their second oldest fire truck of 1938 Buffalo, and I have their first ladder truck, their first hazmat, one of the first attack pumpers, four engines, the hazmat tactical rescue bus. I have to go down the line in the building to remember which ones they are. So oldest hydrant I have is about an 1870s up to 1970s, 1980s vintage. That's unbelievable. Impressive. I mean, yes. Yeah. I, I've got to ask you, and uh, I, I mentioned this to Jeff today. I said, because I'm going to ask him this. And Jeff said, you can't ask him that. But you know what, Bill? I feel I feel very comfortable with you. You're my so, brother. You're family. Exactly. You know. Well, I want to just say fire trucks are beautiful. They really are. and But they they need to be maintained and shined and everything. But what does a fire truck, like when you're bidding on a fire truck, I guess they range in price. I, what does a typical fire truck even go for? It's it's not a hard answer, but it comes in different parts. Probably half of the trucks I got, I didn't pay a penny for. They were outdated. The departments didn't want them anymore. 
the two 1974 Ford Orange, I didn't pay a penny for. I'm trying to think going back through the building. The Bean, I think I maybe paid a thousand for. The Jeep, I paid okay. four thousand for mm-hmm. because I was trying to bid a hunter. Two guys hunting wanted to buy to go hunting in. And it had been stripped out. All the equipment had been removed from it, and I had to bid them. If you're buying a 1938 Aaron's Fox with a big silver ball on the engine, you've probably seen a picture of, of one of those that may be in a museum. Those can go $30,000, $40,000. And Ryko did never have any such. So mine are more commercialized chassis, or they just they just weren't worth anything for somebody to buy. Another department didn't need it because it's too outdated. People just say, hey, if you want it, come get it. Now, do you have to tow them or can or are they drivable? All of them are drivable except for the 38 Buffalo. The 38 Buffalo, a gentleman had had it for years, and it was the second fire truck in Rikeville County ever had. He let it sit for a long period of time, so it's not drivable at this time. Plus, it needs to do a restoration project on it. Tommy, the guy I'm talking about earlier, He's done a couple of restorations, and some of his have been frame off, which they took the entire all the way down to the frame and rebuilt the truck. You're talking about six figures when you're talking about doing that. Mm. Um, can, I'm can not going to do six figures on any of yeah. mine. Can you drive a fire truck down the street when it's not a like all of a sudden you're driving this fire truck down the street and there's actually a fire somewhere, but well, you're not going to it? Is it? it can you drive a fire truck when it's not a operating fire truck? Yes. It, it has antique plates. Um, okay. So just think of an antique car. You take it out on a gotcha. routine basis, keep it you know, running order. There have been two occasions that I can think off the top of my head. Now, I know our, our club, the Old Dominion Historical Fire Society, um, we've had several of our members be the first ones on the scene of an accident. A lot of our guys keep equipment on the truck in case that happens. Because just imagine a car accident just happened in front of you and you go blowing past the accident in a 1974 pumper and you don't stop. That'd be some letter writing to that county saying, hey, your fire truck didn't stop and I was injured. Optics not good. (laughs) No. So uh, some of our guys keep uh, extinguishers on hand that are still in working order and keep them maintained, a first aid kit. I can think of a fire, car fire on 295 around Richmond, one of our members stopped at. It, it happened right in front, and he said the whole engine compartment just went into smoke and flame. And the guy pulled over, and he put the fire out before the local fire department showed up. Wow. So, yes, it happens. You can drive them. Uh, we had a problem one time with uh, Gaston, which was a remnants of a hurricane. Uh, our pumping stations went down in the county. Uh, local restaurant had a big fire. And I was asked, do you still have that thousand gallon tank pumper? Yes. Uh, Does it have water? No, but I can get water. And so I brought it here to my house and we just staged it in the cul-de-sac, which I live. And I I let the local station know that I had a thousand gallons if they needed and to just call me. It didn't get used, but if it was needed, it was available. And a lot lot of of stuff I've done with the trucks, funeral details. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. think about today's fire trucks, to get a casket in the back of those hose beds, you almost need a forklift or a crane. Mm-hmm. And uh, two of mine have a low hose bed, pretty much chest high, so you can get the casket in the back. And I've carried several dozen retired firefighters to their final resting in the back of my truck. 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's great. Hop- I don't say it's a hobby, but it's a great thing that you're doing. I know in our towns, when they have a parade, we see the, the old fire trucks come down and they're really quite fascinating to look at. So, you know, that's great work that you're doing to keep these historical vehicles, you know, around for future generations. So that, that's cool. terrific. If I can just bring it back to barbecue for, for a few more minutes of what we have. Uh, I see on the Mid-Atlantic Barbecue website here that you have a uh, team of the year series could you explain how that how that works and who's the team of the year and take us through that the team of the year is in kansas city barbecue society they have their own you get points based on your finish in a contest how many teams are there you get rider points to that so you finish in first place you get 250 points and then if there are 30 teams there you get 30 additional points so the bigger the contest the more points you'll pick up with Mid-Atlantic Barbecue Association, or MABA as we call it, we have similar. We have the same thing where we have a uh, amount of points awarded to each champion, and then each it, it drops down from there in levels to you get to a point where each team at the contest gets a set amount of points. Our team of the year runs through the end of the year. We have an annual banquet at the end, uh, uh, usually in February. I think this year we're looking at having it somewhere in the Maryland area probably. And our region is from New York to North Carolina. So any teams that are a member of our association, if they compete in a contest, they get points. We have two tiers. We have some teams that can only do four, five, six contests a year. We have teams like Wolf's Revenge, Old G Smoke, uh, Uncle Pigs. Uh, they'll probably do 30, 35 teams, uh, contests a year. And they'll travel all over. But we count the points only in the MABA region for the MABA team of the year. Kansas City counts it for any contest you do in the Kansas City Contest Series. Uncle Pig, speaking of him, uh, he con- he competed in a contest in South Central Virginia this past weekend on sa- Friday, Saturday, finished up at awards at 2 o'clock, you know, finished up, got the awards done. He won that contest. I want to say he drove 1,200 miles to a contest maybe in Vermont and won that on Sunday. Uh-huh. And uh, he is currently listed as the team of the year. He's the leader in the KCBS team of the year. So he picked up points at both contests. He went from, I think, third place to first place by doing that. Bill, going back to, to my stalking online, I saw something you had mentioned about Operation Barbecue Relief. It looks like you were involved with it. Are you still involved? And uh, what, what is your involvement with that? We made a uh, OBR, Operation Barbecue Relief, OBR made a change to how we are set up in each state. I joined years ago. It's no fee to join. It's a volunteer organization. Two gentlemen uh, at the Jasper Tornadoes years ago, both of them didn't know each other. They just showed up to help feed people that had lost homes and family members. They just wanted to give something back. They ran into each other, and next thing you know, they're sitting over dinner one day and drew out the plans for what became Operation Barbecue Relief. Operation Barbecue Relief is made up of volunteers across the United States that will travel into a disaster area, invited by the local EOC emergency operations uh, team to help feed first responders and or victims of the event. Nothing to be said bad about American Red Cross. They do a great job. We're giving a fresh, hot meal. It's impossible for them to pull that off. They're mostly doing sandwich, cold cut sandwiches, maybe a piece of fruit, which is fine. But a warm meal brings a little bit of normalcy back to a family that may have lost everything. 
so right now we have a team in Florida. They're doing 50,000 meals a day for the last couple of days. When they were in Houston for the floods, they were doing 50,000 meals a day, uh, which is a lot. But uh, we have a good team of people that go out and, and help. We've done small events where we're doing five or 600 meals a day. If that's what it takes, we'll do that. If they need more, we'll do as much as we can. Hurricane a couple of years ago in Florida, we sent, you're always looking for new ways to get food to people. And FedEx joined us. Uh, we found out some of the islands had been devastated and they weren't getting food. We couldn't figure out how to get them meals. And FedEx stepped up and we'd send three or four of our guys over there on small planes. And FedEx was flying in the meals to those people to distribute to those families. It's hard rendering to see the devastation that a flood or a hurricane can cause to people and they've lost everything. But just to see the comfort that they get from a hot meal uh, is tremendous. Yeah, we, we've we had uh, some people talk about it. It's a phenomenal organization. Anytime there's a disaster, Operation Barbecue Relief steps up and it's just, they do incredible work. So it's good to see that your involvement with it. I know that we your time, we, we don't want to take all of your time. And um, but I just wanted to ask you, you had something also on the on your site, not that you had written about every fall you do a stew and cue. And tell us a little bit about stew and cue. Not not to fire shots across the bow again with Georgia, but Brunswick stew was invented in Virginia in a county called Brunswick, Virginia. There is a Brunswick, Georgia. If you go back in the history books of, of knowledge and information, uh, Virginia became occupied area before Georgia did. You can track it back to the 1700s and even earlier that we were doing Brunswick stews. Brunswick stews is a thick stew. It can be variations of deer, turkey, rabbit, whatever you want to put into it, uh, you can do. My family started doing a Brunswick stew in a little small five-gallon pot just for us and you know for a couple of friends while camping, and it evolved into 60, 70, 80 people at the house. Uh, we used to do it up on the Skyline Drive in Virginia where it's cool, have a cool night. We invite people in. They bring in you know ham biscuits, brownies, you know cheese, sti- you know cheese balls, whatever, and we just sit around a campfire and just snack all day and. Uh, stir the stew and when it's done it's done and you eat stew so i added barbecue to it once i got into doing barbecue so we feed uh, you know we've had as many as 60 people here at our house if not a few more and we just sit around and like i said it's family softball players uh, umpires fire truck people church people family members barbecue people and it's always funny how small the world is when your neighbor next door knows barbecue people that we have been friends with for years and didn't realize they knew each other. And it was like a reunion homecoming that they ran into each other in our driveway. So we sit around and eat barbecue and stew all night if, if uh, uh, and have a great time. And, and soon he'll be including podcasters. There you go. <laughs> uh, come on down. October 20th. I don't know the days. Last Saturday in October. And we'll show you what Virginia Brunswick stew is, so you won't have to have that Georgia stuff. <laughs> you know, barbecue, it's just, I mean, the, the food food in general, when you get people together and barbecue, it, it's just, it is a beautiful thing. 
Um, I've always found it funny that if people find out I'm a barbecue judge, I'm usually asked a couple of questions or one or two of the questions. One, how did you become a barbecue judge? Uh, how do I become a barbecue judge? And the hardest question ever to answer is, so where's the best barbecue in town? <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time that's happened, I'd, I'd have a whole lot more. I'd probably have four figures. I mean, it's just everybody wants to know where the best barbecue in town is. And all you have to do is go online on Facebook tonight, type in the best barbecue in my town is fill it in with whatever you want to say, and it will be on. I don't fault anybody if you like mustard. I like it all. Uh, Mustard-based, I like Alabama chicken, uh, Savannah-based, Kansas City-based. I like Eastern North Carolina. I like Western North Carolina. Um, If it's cooked well, I love it. It doesn't have to be any particular type. And, And to the Georgia family and friends in Georgia, that might hear this podcast, Brunswick Stew down there is just as good as Virginia Brunswick Stew, but we just <laughs> had it before y'all did. And the other thing with the good barbecue is that from everything that everyone says, with contests, you're going for that one mouth bite. Yes. And that's it. Whereas if I want to eat a rack of ribs, I don't want to eat a rack of competition ribs. I want to eat a rack of ribs from the finest barbecue place in town which bill which place would that be <laughs> actually if i uh, i've said this to a gazillion times to people i'll tell them we're going to get in the car and i'm going to drive about an hour east of richmond to a place called county grill it's in the hampton area the reason i like them better than most in in the richmond area uh he does a uh, pulled pork he pulls it at the time you place the order he's not pre-pulling it at eight mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning sits in a steam pan and dries out uh there are six sauces on his table so you can dab a little alabama sauce you can dab a little carolina sauce you can dab a little vinegar sauce and 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 just like you're eating six different barbecue meals at the same time he makes a great warm potato salad i've never had it very often i have to share it if i do he makes a great banana baked banana cream pie uh and it is huge and it's not for one person eating but I, I'll go there. Uh, there are restaurants in the Richmond area I will get specific items at. Like if I want some great brisket, I'll carry somebody to ZZQ in Richmond. If I'm looking for good pulled pork, I'm going to County Grill. If I want some of the best barbecue around in the Central Virginia area, we're going to have to drive about two hours south to Edenton, North Carolina, to Old Colony. The people line up at 10 o'clock in the morning. He's usually sold out every day by 2 o'clock. He does a tremendous job. Uh, we just don't have that here in the Richmond area. ZZQ is close to that, but I'm not a fan of some of his, like his ribs tend to be a little bit on more on the tougher side than what I like. And it's not competition that I'm trying to compare it to, but I do like his brisket. I love his Wednesday chicken special uh, when he's had that. That's been very good. So each, each has its own merits. And other places, uh, Smokecraft up in D.C., Arlington area. Um, he's a competition team. He does a great job. We don't normally go to barbecue restaurants when, <laughs> when we're having a barbecue contest the next day. Uh, but I did bring, I had two judge friends come down from Charlottesville. They were going to stay with us before the Sam's Club contest that weekend. And my wife and them were talking the whole way as I'm carrying them out to dinner Friday night. And I pull up in Mission Barbecue's parking lot. And these three women looked at me like I'd lost my mind. 
we're eating barbecue tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah. And they said, you don't have a mission in Charlottesville. So that's why I brought you here. So you can try this. And they're like, no, we, we'd rather have something else. So my rule is Chinese eat Chinese three times a day. Italians eat Italian three times a day. Mexicans eat Mexican three times a day. Why can't we have barbecue three times a day? Makes sense to me. <laughs> you could have it four times a day in between meal snacks. I mean, sure. <laughs> anytime you want. But I, I do agree, though. I, I, I think I would have been of the I, your guests had the right idea. I think I might have said the same thing, like tomorrow, barbecue all day. Can we have a little? I, I don't even know what I'd have the night before, but. I don't remember where we ended up, but it was it was a uh, I thought it was a funny moment when they realized that we had pulled into a, a barbecue restaurant parking lot. They just had the look of like, you've lost your mind. <laughs> but that's probably true. <laughs> Jeff, we can't take all this guy's time, but I, Bill, you're a delight. You know yeah, I what I love about doing this podcast is Jeff reaches out to the group and we you respond we have a wonderful talk with you and bill i i want to say just have enjoyed this immensely and i really really have i know there's a ton of podcasts out there that you could have been on and you chose us so we feel <laughs> we feel blessed we're lucky and bill i just want to say as jeff wraps this up thank you very much not a problem. One question. Where are you both from? Uh, we're in Long Island. Long, Long Island, Island, New York. Okay. Yes. So I've, I've eaten at several restaurants up there. I've been up there with the fire department when we had the some of the honor guard services for the okay. line mm -hmm. of duty deaths after 9-11. At mm -hmm. some other point, I have to tell you the story about being sent to an Italian restaurant uh, down there. It was a joke by the fire department. But I stayed at Fire Patrol 2, which used to be up there. I've uh, judged in Staten Island, mm -hmm. uh, carried an OBR trailer up there. That was, I'm not used to six tunnel roads kind of narrowing down right. to two. And, <laughs> Merging to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's how we keep our traffic. We, yeah, we, you know, know, we love our traffic. <laughs> I, I, no, I, give me a value and put me to sleep. I'll sleep in the back. Somebody else drive yeah. this rig in yeah. here because this, this is nuts. Yeah. But yeah, yes. if you're ever uh, if you get over to uh, the contest in New Jersey, if you want to go over there, you let me know, and I'll be glad to uh, have the reps talk to you and introduce you to some of the teams and, and some of the judges, that. and and uh, have a great time. Like I said, once you get to know the barbecue teams and the judges, uh, I can't say enough. You're you're friends for life, and you found a new family. Yeah. Well, we thank you very much, Bill. The website is Mid-Atlantic BBQ Association, M-A-B-B-Q-A.com. Check them out. And as Bill was talking about before, OBR Relief, please, uh, if you can, donate to them because they are a terrific organization. Bill, thank you very much for being on Baseball sure. BBQ. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Bill. And we want to thank Bill Jones for coming on with us. He's a, he's a great guy, great storyteller. I mean, he's, he's going to be coming back on the show. I said this this episode is a tale of two John Jones. The Jones and Jones. Yeah. You know, the barbecue stuff's amazing. Yeah. But but the fact that he owns eleven fire trucks and a hundred eight fire hydrants. And I don't think he's done. No. <laughs> that's a cool hobby. Yeah. You know, 
can you where would we put if we tried to even have one fire truck where, where would you park it on your you street can't, you can't <laughs> your neighbors would have a you it wouldn't fit in between the driveways i mean no. it's just and he knows his barbecue yeah he absolutely he absolutely knows his barbecue and uh again bill thank you very much for coming on with us we want to thank both jones both joneses right we want to thank cleon jones bill jones and i want to just tell everybody that this episode is brought to you by bet online where the game starts but jeff i know i know we're not starting we're ending it took you long enough but you get it yeah we are and with that we have to end with the poet shell Krakowski, the musician dave dresser the song is baseball always brings you home red hots in a pennant race. Well, the pennant's been, well, it's not one yet, but the postseason's here. Here we go. Baseball always brings you home. Hopefully, everybody's having a good time. Enjoy the playoffs and we'll enjoy your barbecue and we'll see you soon. Best of all.